Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. name may have changed from George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, or Tamir Rice to Tyree Nichols, but the chants for justice were the same as protesters in Memphis came out to call for change because another black man was killed in a traffic stop. Bitch, put your hands behind your back, quick. Okay, stop. I'm going knock right. the out. You guys are really doing a lot right now. Video footage shows five police officers savagely and repeatedly beat, kick, pepper spray, and shock Nichols, screaming profanities at him while he's pinned to the ground and calls out for his mother. Nichols is then propped against a car, bloodied and handcuffed, until a stretcher is finally brought more than 20 minutes later. He died in the hospital three days later. The five black officers were fired and charged with murder, kidnapping, and other crimes. Their elite unit has been disbanded. My guest is David Harris, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh Law School and a leading authority on law enforcement and racial profiling. Obviously, this isn't the first time we've seen police turning a traffic stop into a deadly encounter. Why does this keep happening? Why aren't police learning from prior incidents? Well, there's so many answers to that. But number one, policing is hyper-localized in this country. Every department is its own little island. And so some are doing very well at any one time and some less so. Some learn some lessons and not others. More than that, we keep falling back into some of the same old traps as we have problems crop up. And you can trace the use of these specialized units that kind of get a set of instructions from police leadership or even politicians. Go out there and get those bad guys. We'll back you up. And we're surprised when a catastrophe like this occurs. Number three, we are still, sad to say, training police in a way that gives them the feeling that it's it's a war out there. And that's the culture they're all steeped in. And when you do that, you know, war has casualties. And, you know, you, you hold this scorpion unit or whatever unit in your own city up for public acclaim and look at all the good they're doing. Are we really surprised? 
you can send out a specialized unit and say, we're going to focus on these racers and things like that, the people who are making interstate highways into their private racetracks and doing it through neighborhoods. But this kind of thing, this use of force is just off the charts and yet far too common. It's hard to watch this. When you look at it, do you see what went wrong or did everything go wrong from the start? Well, we don't know exactly how it started, Jim. That's one of the things people need to keep in mind. We don't know what happened before the action that we first see in the horrifying videos. And at that point, it's already underway. They're pulling this man out of his car with an amount of force and a kind of almost anger screaming at him and so forth. That seems hard to justify. We just don't know why it happened. But as far as what goes wrong, I mean, you can point to a number of different things. I would just hit a couple, and that is, number one, when force is used, it has to be used in a way that is completely justified, and officers are highly trained in what that means, what it looks like. They clearly stepped over the line here. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but not one of these officers said to another one, okay, I think we got this. We don't need that, you know? There were any number of points in which somebody should have said, enough, There's training now that is being given in some places in the United States that focuses on that moment, the duty to intervene. In fact, Tennessee had a law proposed just like that. There would be a legal duty to intervene. I don't think the law passed. But this is the case now in law enforcement policy across the country, and yet nobody did that here. So that's number one. Number two, I hear a lot about training and a lot about they need better this and better that. There's a fundamental lack of humanity here. I mean, you know, with officers congratulating each other on doing this, paying no attention to the man when he's in obvious medical distress. This is as much a problem of the culture of this department. If it will allow something like this, if it will allow this kind of conduct, and the officers don't exhibit any feeling like something wrong happened here, this tells you that this is not just some kind of training deficit. It is, in fact, something deeply wrong in the culture and standards of this department and how all that fits together. All five officers are being charged with second-degree murder. What's the burden on the prosecution to prove that charge? Any criminal trial against police officers will be an uphill battle for prosecutors, even ones where there is video. That is still true even in the era of George Floyd, because juries always give police officers the benefit of the doubt. It is less true than it used to be, but it is still true. So to prove a second-degree murder under the Tennessee statute that has been applied here, the prosecution will have to prove that this killing was done knowing that death could result. So in other words, they don't have to prove premeditation like they would for first-degree murder, but they will have to prove that the actions were taken that killed this man knowing that the death of the man would occur. And that's going to be a tough sell, I think. It's going to be tough to do because some people will react to this by saying, well, okay, maybe they meant to really beat the guy up, but they certainly didn't want him to die. And that is likely to be the defense on the murder charge. And where will the use of force question come in? I don't know how you defend their use of force here when the guy was on the ground saying, okay, okay, I'm on the ground. I don't understand how you could even justify that. 
in most respects, you can't. What we've seen in other trials like this, all the way back to the Rodney King trial, which you may remember the first time those officers were charged, they were acquitted, then they had to go to federal court and they were convicted. The ways that these cases are sometimes defended, especially even with video, is that the defense kind of pulls the video apart, frame by frame almost, and almost brings it down to the level of individual bites or individual molecules and tries to explain away what happened with the idea that the officers in this particular situation had reason to be fearful for their own safety. It is hard for me to see how that's a point that can carry the day given what we see in these awful, awful videos. But that's what it will look like. That's how they will try to justify that use of force. In the high-profile police-involved deaths that come to mind, it was usually white police officers and a black victim. Here the officers were black and so was the victim. Does that change the conversation from racism to systemic problems with police? I think to some degree it does, but it really shouldn't surprise anybody that this could be five black officers and a department with a black chief who came in as a reformer. What you're looking at here is not anything perhaps to do with the attitudes of the individual officers. You're looking at at these five officers who fit into an agency, a system that allows this kind of behavior or encourages it. You layer that on top of all that we know about how the broader culture of society and the culture of police devalue and fear black people, particularly black men. There's a lot of measurement of this over many, many years and you know, hundreds of studies. Um, people look at black people as sources of violence and criminality and danger. You put all that together, black people are breathing in that same cultural air. And it isn't really a surprise that people within that police department who have been praised for their actions out on the street, even as their own communities were complaining that a lot of heavy-handed tactics going on out here. We don't like this. It's no surprise that it ends up like this, even if all the officers are black. It is the culture and the operations of that police department that allows this kind of conduct to happen. And they're part of that structure, too, whether they're white or black or something else. How do you think the the police department handled this here? Because within two weeks, the officers had been fired. Within three weeks, all had been charged with second-degree murder. And then, you know, the police chief condemned their actions, and then they released the video. What do you think of the police department's response after the incident? After the incident? especially knowing that there was video and what it would show, because they knew it before the public saw it, they reacted in a way that was appropriate and relatively swift. Uh, I've been working in this area for long enough that I can remember very easily, uh, you know, the police department and the district attorney would kind of uh, put the clamps on this, put out no information, we're just doing an investigation, you got to give us time, and months and months later, there'd be some kind of an announcement on a Friday afternoon. They know that the public won't stand for that anymore. So that represents uh, an important change, not just in Memphis, but in a lot of places. 
We know that they can, they do not do that like they used to, though it goes on still sometimes. The problem is not in their reaction to it. The problem is what led up to it. So the reaction all comes later, and that's, you know, that's good. They're off-duty. They're criminally charged. It looks like an appropriate reaction. But we got to do what we need to do ahead of time so these things don't happen at all or they become just incredibly rare. And right now, it just keeps happening because we're not doing the things we need to do in order to stop it. We're putting out a specialized crime suppression unit, and we're telling them, go out there, do the thing, and we'll back you up, and we'll applaud you. And then we're surprised when things go terribly wrong like this. I wrote a whole book about an incident like this in Pittsburgh 10 years ago. So this isn't new. It isn't just Memphis. We have to stop reaching for answers like that, that lead to this place. We have to get away from the culture of fear and the culture of war. Uh, as a way to do domestic policing. This isn't really a failure of training in that sense. They're doing exactly what they were trained to do. Um, They're trained to go to war in their own communities. And that's what has to stop. We have to have a policing domestically that is about de-escalation, communication, all when we can do it. You can't do that in every situation. But right now, it's about ask, tell, make, force, uh, I'm in charge, you're not, we scream at you, you do what we want, and we'll do to you what we want. That's what has to change. David, these police officers were wearing body cams and knew they were being filmed, and yet they still went ahead and did this. So have the body cams and the bystander videos changed anything? It has changed things. I think those are part of the reason of cameras that we frankly have the charges and that we have the officers dismissed. Uh, Other than the film, I don't think that would happen because it's simply untenable. If that film is out there and we know it's going to come to light at some point, it's untenable to just go about business as usual when you know the public is going to see that. And we've seen that in some important cases. I mean, think of that case with the man in South Carolina who was shot in the back as he was running away. This is a couple of years ago. The police officer had signed off on that saying, yeah, yeah, he did this, he did that. So I had to shoot him. That guy was going back on duty the next day. And then came the bystander cell phone video. And he's in prison for murder now. So it has changed a lot. What people need to understand is that it doesn't change everything. I think there was an expectation. Those cameras were sold to us as this will change everything in policing. And that's just not true. They, don't, they only see what's in front of the lens. There are perspective biases that are involved. And if it's not turned on, like we know in this case, we don't know what happened before those cameras came on, it's still going to leave blank spots in the record. But what you see here is very, very important. It takes certain aspects of a confrontation in many cases away from being disputed. You know, you can argue about interpretation later, uh, but you cannot argue that this guy wasn't beaten and beaten badly and beaten unnecessarily. And that is really fundamental and important. So cameras are not the silver bullet that has changed everything, but they have made a difference. I know that there's a lot of talk, and in fact, some 
cities have actually passed ordinances that police officers shouldn't be involved in traffic stops. Will that stop this, just to have the police officers not involved in any kind of traffic enforcement? Well, most of that action, and you're quite right, there's a move toward that. It's still pretty early to see how much traction that has. But I do see in a number of cities, including in uh, my own city, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, across the state, that some cities and police departments are limiting police power to make certain kinds of stops. And then there are, you know, a handful of jurisdictions uh, that are creating separate non-police forces to do uh, traffic enforcement. Will it stop this? Well, that latter kind, if it was not armed police, you certainly couldn't have a situation like this. But what all these efforts are designed to do, the challenge they are designed to meet, is number one, to to minimize the chance that we'll have some kind of catastrophe like this, that some kind of routine traffic stop will turn into a disaster of this type. And number two, uh, and this is actually more common, I mean, this is a terrible, terrible tragedy for Tyree and the man's family, but in the more common scenario, police are using traffic offenses just to stop people and investigate them when there is no evidence that they've done anything wrong. The officer just doesn't like the looks of them or something. And they use traffic offenses as pretext to stop people. And where they do that, and it's very common across states and cities and towns, you see in the data, assuming the uh, the agency keeps the data, that this is something that is experienced disproportionately by people of color, black and brown people. What those efforts will do is not just minimize the chance of a catastrophe like this. What they will also do is stop police departments from interfering with drivers who happen to be black or brown because they think they're up to something. That kind of policing almost never recovers guns, almost never recovers other contraband, and is just an irritant that erodes the relationship between police and the people they're supposed to serve. Do they occasionally get a gun? Sure. Do they occasionally get some marijuana or maybe even something else? Of course they do. But it's an inefficient use of resources that has done damage to the relationship that we need between police and those they're supposed to serve. The Justice Department is investigating whether Nichols' civil rights were violated. Do they seem to be jumping in sooner to do these investigations? I think to some extent they are. You have to remember that when the Justice Department is investigating, the Justice Department is part of the uh, administration that is in power. So um, during the uh, Obama administration, two presidential terms, there's a unit within the Justice Department that was created before Obama to investigate cases like this. And they did more of these kinds of civil rights police misconduct cases than I think had occurred in the prior eight years under Bush, for sure. And the reason for that is different administrations prioritized different issues. Bush took the emphasis off that with his attorneys general. Uh, But during Obama, uh, they really did speed that up. Uh, uh, Under Trump, 
the opposite happened. They slowed those down. They took away all the Justice Department attorneys that they could who were focused on that issue and deployed them to other issues. Now, with the Biden administration, they are responding rapidly once again. It's really a question of resources because that unit within the Justice Department only has so many lawyers, and there are 18,000 police departments in this country. So you're only going to really get a response when there is a real problem, usually a problem that the local actors cannot or will not address. That's when you'll see them. Thanks, David. That's Professor David Harris of the University of Pittsburgh Law School. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Elon Musk is no stranger to the witness stand. The billionaire has been nicknamed Teflon Elon for his ability to testify and escape unscathed. Musk took the stand in trials in Los Angeles in 2019 and in Delaware in 2021, and he won in both cases. Now, at a trial in San Francisco, Musk is defending the infamous tweets from four and a half years ago about taking Tesla private with funding secured. Tesla investors contend the tweets amounted to lies that cost them big losses from wild stock price swings over a 10-day period before the plan was abandoned. Billions of dollars in damages are on the line. Just how effective was Musk on the stand this time around? Here to answer that question is Bloomberg legal reporter Joel Rosenblatt, who's been covering the trial. Joel, tell us about his demeanor on the stand and whether he interacted with the jurors at all. He interacted very much with the jurors, more than any witness I've seen, actually, in terms of eye contact and really, you know, in his responses, indicating that he's talking to them and not just responding to attorneys. He was quiet. He was quieter than I expected. 
And he also was even even muttering at times. I'm told by our star Tesla reporter and my colleague, Dana Hall, that he speaks like that, that that's pretty normal. But he was halting and muttering and quiet for much of his testimony. I was surprised by that. Because he has been on the stand before, and I think maybe every time it's worked out for him. Yeah, I'm not sure if he has a, you know, a thousand percent batting average, but but a good one. And I think it's worked out again for him here. You can tell it's something of a rehearsal. I mean, he's he's obviously practiced because there were times also where the plaintiff's attorney did get to him and it felt like the real Elon Musk came out and uh, it got tense and kind of bitter. There was a quick but bitter exchange between them. So I think he's kind of, you know, maybe it's something of an act that he's putting on the stand for this case anyway. And so far, pretty successful, I think. Yeah. So what's the goal for his side? What does he have to do on the stand? Right. Well, so he's accused of defrauding investors with his tweet in 2018, telling the world through a tweet that he was considering taking Tesla private. That's the exact word considering, which is key. And the key part of the case is really the next sentence in which he indicated that he has funding secured to do that. And that's the part that the SEC previously and now shareholders in the class action are saying was fraudulent. His goal is to prove that that's, that's not the case, that it wasn't fraudulent at all. And he's done that by saying that he had the funding at his kind of fingertips. Jurors are being asked to look at the world through Elon's view, through the lens of Elon Musk. And in that world, you can do a deal on a handshake with the Saudis. So he claims that he had funding secured through a handshake deal with the uh, public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. And in Elon Musk's world, that's how you can do business. And that's good enough to tell the world that you had funding secured. What did the judge rule about the tweets already? Well, Junior, you're familiar with summary judgment. So, right, this is a pretrial finding by the judge that the tweets were false, number one, and also reckless, right? So those are kind of two of the hurdles, two of the four to five, depending on how you kind of count these things, hurdles that the shareholders have to clear in order to prove that he committed fraud. The real trick here is that they have to prove and the jury has to find that Elon Musk knew. He knew that the tweet was false and he knew that it was reckless. In other words, not only did he know that it was false, but that he also knew it would be material to the shareholders, meaning, you know, important to them or meaningful in their investment decisions. And he's saying, no, it wasn't false. I did have funding secured on a like sort of a handshake deal. Yeah. And there's kind of a logical, I think it's, it's a confusing logical disconnect in the case because he is saying, he's not allowed to say, he's not allowed to say this wasn't false because the judge has determined that it's false. But he has an effect. He is in effect saying it's false by saying, well, it wasn't untrue because for the reason you just said, and I described earlier, he had the funding secured. He also injected something completely new into the trial that I think took the plaintiff's lawyers a bit by surprise, which is he said, not only that, I could divest myself of my privately held company, SpaceX, if needed, in order to fund a a transaction to take Tesla private. And so that's another example of how, 
well, it was false, according to the judge, but in my world, hardly untrue. So if he had the funding secured, according to him, why didn't he go through with taking Tesla private? You know, we've yet to hear a good explanation of that, except that Tesla did issue a statement about 10 days later after the tweet in question, explaining why they're not going to. Essentially, Elon decided against it, is the explanation that we've heard in court. And he said on the stand that, you know, he long contemplated taking Tesla private, but that there's benefits and drawbacks to both private and publicly held companies. In the end, he he decided that he he wasn't going to do it. The tweet, he keeps referring to the August 8th, I believe it is, 2018 tweet, in which he says, am considering taking Tesla private. They've put a lot of emphasis on the word considering to mean that's something he was contemplating, not that he was going to do it. Some of the interesting things that I thought that you wrote about were he had all kinds of discussions with other billionaires, CEOs, and and bank people about this? Yeah, there's, you know, the trial's been a real window. It has been a window into his world in which, you know, he's operating, uh, having dinner with, I mentioned, you know, the governor from the Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Uh, He was there. The Saudis came here to Northern California to the factory. You know, he's operating with Larry Ellison, all kinds of bankers and, and investors with holdings in Tesla. And so it's just this kind of rarefied, very wealthy world that he's operating in and that jurors have had a window onto. Were there any lighthearted moments or, you know, any big reveals about him? Well, there was two that come to mind. One lighthearted moment was when the lawyer for the shareholders just kind of confused or he's got a lot of things in his mind and turned in his questioning and referred to Elon Musk as Mr. Tweet. <laughs> and uh, and I, I haven't done my own kind of research to determine this, but apparently that's that's kind of taken hold in, in the Twitterverse and the Twitter world and, and beyond where I think he's now kind of taken on the name, Mr. Tweet, or so I've heard. So that's, that was one kind of lighthearted moment. And in those kinds of moments, he always kind of also turned it, not necessarily back on, on the lawyer, but turned it around in a way in, in which he kind of agrees that maybe that would be a good name for him. That was one lighthearted moment. Another kind of strange and, and darker moment, maybe by design, was when um, his own lawyer on cross-examination asked him about his childhood. He was, I I think, born in South Africa, at least raised there until he emigrated to the United States. And the lawyer asked, began to ask about his childhood. And and he asked, how how was your childhood? What was it like? And then he got very quiet. It almost seemed as if he was going to cry. And Elon Musk said, not, not good. And his own lawyer kind of was beginning to probe that. And it was just either really well rehearsed or, or something else uh, kind of stranger because Elon Musk didn't want to talk about that. He, he refused to. He didn't, he didn't go any further. And that was a kind of a strange, intense moment. I don't, I don't know what that is about his childhood that, that was not good. It's hard to imagine that his lawyer didn't go over most aspects of his testimony with him, but you never know. Now, what about the jurors? Were they engaged, interested, captivated? You know, I, I'm kind of like notoriously bad at reading jur- <laughs> juries. Most people are, I think. I'm glad to hear that because I've gotten it wrong too many times to, to say, but I right. will say this about this jury. They seem, most of them seem quite attentive 
and many of them taking notes. It seems to me of, of the juries I've watched, the most studious jury I've ever seen. They seem really to be listening very carefully. And how important is his testimony to the case against him? Does the case depend on his testimony? You know, you and I have talked about the case, the, the criminal prosecution, which is quite different, of, of Elizabeth Holmes. But a similarity there, besides uh, securities fraud, is, uh, and let me be clear there, one's criminal uh, in the case of Elizabeth Holmes and, and Elon Musk faces civil liability. But the similarity there is that, like Elizabeth Holmes, you know, when you have the defendant like that who takes the witness stand, you know, the case just turns on that. I mean, there's a lot left in this case. There's a lot. We're going to hear from many more experts. But it seems to me that when you have a named defendant of such notoriety, that when that person takes a stand, it seems like the, you know, I think the case turns on that testimony. And it's an interesting, it's a great question in this case in particular, because Elon Musk, his lawyers have done an interesting thing. They've used a lot more time than the plaintiff's lawyers on their cross-examination of him in particular. So they seem to be burning all of their time. You know, they have 18 hours, I think, allotted to each side. And Musk's lawyers are using all of their time on cross-examinations, I think, to kind of turn the plaintiff's case against them immediately with each witness. And they did that. They've done that effectively, I think, and, and, in, and in particular with Elon Musk. Well, there's a lot more to go in this trial. Thanks so much, Joel. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Joel Rosenblatt. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.